rebellion broke out in the Roman province of Judea. And Emperor Nero sent Vespasian into Judea to put down that rebellion. And Vespasian was so effective in doing so that later he would actually be named the Emperor of Rome in 69 AD after Nero had committed suicide. He didn't even have an opportunity to finish the job. The work was still ongoing when he was named the emperor. And so before departing for Rome, he actually appointed his favorite general to finish the job, his son Titus. Uh, Titus wanted to go in and, and finish the job, and finish the job he did in an unusually bloody and brutal fashion. Titus's objective was to systematically go throughout each city in Judea and to conquer it, which would leave hundreds of thousands of Jews slaughtered or enslaved. He went on this tirade and finally he turned his attention to the crown jewel of Judea, the capital city of Israel. Jerusalem. And you, it's important for us to note right now that at that particular time, the population of Jerusalem had swollen, um, in part because of a number of refugees that had fled to the city of Jerusalem to find safety there within its city walls but in large part to the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of worshipers that had descended upon Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Some of you may be aware, unaware of the fact that even after Jesus died and rose again, temple worship continued until the fall of the temple in 70 AD, which is where we're heading here. Uh, Titus decided that the best way to take the city was to surround it. And so he besieged the city. He surrounded it on all sides. No one could get in with food or supplies and no one could get out. And he waited for starvation to take its toll. And once it did, the Jewish defenders were absolutely decimated. And Titus sent in four legions of hardened Roman soldiers against the city. Anyone trying to escape would be crucified in full view of the city, often hundreds at a time, in order to make them an example. The Jews were completely surrounded and they were forced to prepare for a battle that it was impossible for them to win. All of their defenders were absolutely ravaged by starvation. In fact, Josephus, many of you have heard that name before, he's a Jewish historian that was actually released by Rome to keep record of history. He was there. He was an eyewitness of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And he wrote that many Jews at that time resorted to cannibalism in order to stay alive. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD to this day remains one of the most intense, merciless attacks in human history. 
It began, some of you know this, with the catapulting of large boulders over the city walls to provide cover for the legions that were now ramming the northern wall of Jerusalem. After two weeks of intense fighting, they finally breached that wall. But before they could attack the defenders, they were able to retreat to a second wall. But five days later, that wall was breached and the Roman soldiers entered into Jerusalem and there they met the last pocket of resistance, the Jewish temple. Many of you know that the Jewish temple was the holiest site in Jerusalem. For centuries, thousands upon thousands of Jewish men and women and those who had converted to Judaism would go to the temple to worship the Lord and to offer sacrifices to Him. Little did they know that coming there this year, they were actually not coming to a city, they were entering into their coffin. The fortress that was right next to the temple was taken. The soldiers then erected a ramp that went into the temple complex. And it was at that point that one last violent push was made as the soldiers entered into the temple and they butchered every last defender that they found. They, they looted the temple, they burned it to the ground, and Josephus was careful to remind us that the soldiers then systematically dismantled the temple stone by stone, literally leaving not one stone upon the other in an order to retrieve the gold that had melted in the intense fire and had flown into the cracks. When all was said and done, Josephus estimates that over a six-month period of time, the total body count of Jews was 1.3 million. Boys, girls, men, and women. That number is disputed In recent times, people have said there was no way that there could have been that many, and they would number it in like five, six hundred thousand, but anywhere from five to six hundred thousand to one point three million Jews were killed in a six month period of time. And not all of them died by the sword either. I debated, I deliberated whether I should share this next comment with you, but But it really is pertinent. You need to understand some of these things to understand the direction I'm going today. As starving Jews rushed out of the city, they surrendered to the Roman soldiers, and the Roman soldiers took them into captivity, but gave them something to eat. And remember, these are men and women that have survived on scraps for the last six months and so now they are eating and they didn't know how to stop and many of them ate until their stomachs ruptured and they died right there and to add insult to injury because there was no proper burial given to them and their bodies were strewn over the desert at some point Arabian and Syrian wanderers and nomads made their way through the bodies and would cut open their stomachs and they would retrieve gold and coins and other valuables that the Jews had swallowed before they fled the city. To say that this was horrifying would be an understatement. 
But what is more overwhelming, what is perhaps more sad, especially if you know Bible history, is the thought that according to something that Jesus had said 40 years before this had ever occurred, these events were not necessary. That none of them had to happen. It was not necessary for Jerusalem to be destroyed. There was no part of the fall of Jerusalem that contributed to our salvation. Our salvation was secure the moment that Christ said, it is finished, and then he rose from the dead on the third day. So Jerusalem didn't have to fall in any way to contribute to salvation or the truthfulness of Almighty God. And what you realize, again, based upon something that Jesus had said 40 years before the fall of Jerusalem, is that none of it was necessary. That none of it had to happen. In fact, God had actually gone out of his way to prevent this and to provide for them everything that was necessary for peace so that they could escape this disaster. And if the Jews had just simply heeded the warnings of Christ that he gave, if they had simply recognized the signs that he performed and the prophecies that he had fulfilled, then this could have been avoided altogether. And believe it or not, it all came down to one day that we recognize today as Palm Sunday. Today's Palm Sunday. This is the day that we remember Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem where he is hailed as the Messiah, the long-awaited King of the Jews. But what many of you may not know is that when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem that day on the back of a donkey, that he was actually fulfilling two very pivotal prophecies concerning the coming Messiah that were given in the mid-500 B.C. time period. The first one that I'm going to show you here today is mind-bending. It is staggering when you consider its accuracy. It was given to a man named Daniel who lived some 600 years before Jesus was even born. As a teenager, Daniel had been deported to Babylon somewhere around 605 B.C. during the Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem had fallen to the Babylonians and had been taken captive And he had watched the rise of the Babylonian Empire, but he had also seen the demise of the Babylonians as they were swallowed up by the Persians. But Daniel, because of the favor of God that was upon his life, was able to rise through the ranks and actually served in high-ranking positions in both the Babylonian and the Persian administration. But Daniel, because of his commitment to the Lord also, Being a man after God's own heart was entrusted with many dreams and with many visions. And some of them are absolutely astounding. And one of them I want to share with you right now. It comes from Daniel chapter 9. If you want to turn there, you can. We're going to look at a number of scriptures here to begin with. But it's in in Daniel chapter number 9, beginning with verse number 24. And this is what we read. Seventy weeks are determined. Now, understand that 70 weeks is not a really good translation. It would be better translated 77s. In this case, he's not looking at weeks as seven days. It's just a reference point. It's really 77s are determined for your people and for your holy city, 
Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And that is a reference to the Messiah. So what he's actually giving us here is the total plan of redemption. And what he's saying is that 77s are going to bring about the total and complete redemption plan of Almighty God. Now listen to what he says on further. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth, now stay with me, okay, from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which had fallen to the Babylonians, until Messiah the Prince. So from the time a decree goes forward to rebuild Jerusalem, Till the revelation of the Messiah, there shall be seven weeks, or seven sevens, followed by 62 weeks, 62 sevens. We'll get to this in a moment. He goes on and says, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, the 62 sevens, Messiah shall be cut off. But not for himself. Now I could read a little bit more here, but I'm not going to in interest of time. And I certainly wish I had the time to unpack this the way that I should, but I don't. So I'm just going to have to give you some bullet points and I'm just praying you can track with me for a little while because it'll be well worth your tracking. But let me just say this, that I would encourage all of you at some point to go to the book of Daniel and start studying this on your own because this prophecy is fascinating. In fact, the accuracy of this prophecy has caused skeptics to say that Daniel was written much later because there was no way that Daniel could have have ever seen these things, but we know that he did because there is a God in heaven that is ordering it all for the glory and the honor of his great name, okay? Understand that what we just read there was actually the angel Gabriel coming to Daniel and giving him the the interpretation of a dream that he had received earlier. He had already received the dream, but he didn't understand it. And he asked God for the interpretation. And God sent the angel Gabriel to show him the interpretation. And Gabriel says to him that God's total plan of redemption is going to be fulfilled in 70 weeks. Again, 70 weeks is equivalent to 70 sevens. So the real question here is, what are the sevens? We get the 70, but what are the sevens? Well, again, I don't have time to go through all of this, but if you look at the context and the supporting scriptures, you will find that it's years. It's 70 groupings of seven years. 490 years is what he is saying there. So what God is saying is, my whole plan of redemption is going to come together in 490 years. So he gives them a timetable. Since it's all going to come together in 490 years. The question is, when does that clock start? When do we start counting? Gabriel gave the answer right there. He said that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. 
That's when the clock starts ticking. He says that 490 years is going to begin the moment that someone decrees that the Jews can go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say that after that, the Messiah will come. And he breaks it up into two things here. He says, first will be seven weeks, which again would be 49 years. And then it would be followed by 62 weeks or 434 years. That's 483 years altogether. He seems to indicate this, that from the time a decree goes forward, there's going to be 49 years that something is going to happen. Then that is going to be followed by something else that will happen 434 years after that. 483 years altogether. Okay? Track with me. Here's where it all comes together. We know this historically, not just from the Bible, but we know it from history. In 445 BC, Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia, issued a decree for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Which, by the way, took 49 years. This is what Daniel had prophesied years before this had ever happened. He said that after the decree, there'll be 49 years. That was the completion of Jerusalem. Now, 434 years later, 483 years from the time Artaxerxes actually gave the decree that Jerusalem could be rebuilt... On April the 7th, 32 AD, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey revealing that he was the Messiah. Exactly as Daniel had prophesied. The Jews knew exactly when the Messiah was coming. Because the moment Artaxerxes said, you can go back and rebuild the city... They knew we can start counting. And 483 years later, Jesus came riding in to Jerusalem on the donkey to reveal that he was in fact the Messiah. Now, the fact that he rode in on a donkey actually demonstrates the fulfillment of another critical prophecy that was given. About 20 years after Daniel, God spoke to another prophet named Zechariah who prophesied about 520 years again before Jesus was even born. Now Daniel provided for us when Messiah was coming, 483 years after the decree went out. Now Zechariah by the Holy Spirit is going to show them how he is going to be revealed. They know when to look for him, but how will they know that it's the Messiah? He answers that question in Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
So Daniel says, it's 483 years after Artaxerxes sends out the decree that the Messiah will come. Oh, and by the way, you'll know when he's coming because he's going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, a colt of a donkey. And I'm going to tell you folks, that was all fulfilled 2,000 years ago. As it's recorded in Luke 19, we read this. And it came to pass when Jesus drew to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying go into the village opposite you where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat loose it and bring it here and if anyone asks you why are you loosing it thus you shall say to him because the Lord has need of it they went and did it And then, as Jesus was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And that wasn't just the miracles that he had performed. They knew what day that was. It was 483 years since the rebuilding of Jerusalem was decreed. They knew that this was when he was coming, and now they see him rise in on a colt. They know this is the Messiah. And they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Can I tell you right now, somebody is going to praise the Lord. Either you and I or the rocks of the earth. But he is worthy of our praise. Here this morning. Can you say amen? Now this is significant because this marks the first time that Jesus received praise and worship. Up until this time, he never received worship because the 483 years had not come to pass. But on this day, 483 years since Artaxerxes had sent out the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Jesus knows, now my time is complete. And he received the worship because he says, I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am the Son of the living God. And all the Jews knew it because they knew they'd been counting the days off and when they saw him coming in on that donkey they said this is our Messiah blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord I don't know about anybody else but I get excited that my God is with us and when I read that all over the last couple of weeks the only thought I had was God always keeps his word can you say amen God always keeps his word it may have taken 483 years but God always keeps his word turn to your neighbor and tell him God always keeps his word. Isaiah 55 and verse 11 it says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. I love what Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 2 and verse 3. God says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. You thought you were the first one to say that. But God actually says, wait for it, because it will surely come it will not tarry some of you today need to know that what God has said he is able to perform it may feel like it's tearing but really it's for an appointed time don't you dare give up you can build your life upon the word of God he'll bring it to pass in Jesus mighty name come on somebody give God the praise for that today 
in Jesus' mighty name. But, there's always a but, okay? But, the very next day, not a week later, not a month later, not a year later, the next day, less than 24 hours after they greeted him, Jesus is returning to the city, and we read this. It doesn't say that it's the next day. We know historically it was the next day. It says, now, as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. He's weeping. It's like, Jesus, they just braced you as Messiah yesterday. But Jesus could already sense that their hearts had departed from him. Less than 24 hours later, he draws near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, Jerusalem, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, this is the day that I've made. When they sang that hymn, that psalm, this is the day that the Lord has made, rejoice and be glad in it. That was looking forward to this day. He says, if only you had known, this your day, the things that make for your peace. The things that I'm bringing to make peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Now listen to this. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side. That was a prophecy of Titus, who 40 years later would surround the city. And they'll level you and your children within you to the ground, the mass death. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. The dismantling of the temple, because, that's a powerful word, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus said, none of what's coming in 40 years had to happen. I came to bring you peace. But because you refused to hear my words and see what I was doing, destruction that you could have never imagined is coming your way. Jesus as he's entering into that city, the Bible says that he begins, begins to weep. And the word wept there, it's an audible weeping. You could hear him weeping. He is sobbing loudly. Because Jesus can already discern that those who were adoring him on Sunday had already abandoned him Monday morning. I have to wonder... How many times has God's heart grieved over us because though we adored Him on Sunday, we abandoned Him Monday. Many of us love Jesus as King on Sunday, but we want to be King Monday through Saturday. We're comfortable coming into a house and honoring Him with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. 
That's the legacy of Palm Sunday. We want it to be really fun and ecstatic, but the reality is it was one of the most heart-wrenching moments of Christ's existence on this earth because the same crowd that crowned him on Sunday called out for his crucifixion on Friday. He weeps because he had visited them less than 24 hours ago with all that was necessary for peace. He came to them less than 24 hours and said, I'm showing you the way to peace. But it was hidden from their eyes because they did not discern the time of their visitation. He's weeping because now we could see that 40 years later they would be laid siege to and they and their children would be leveled to the ground and that it didn't have to be this way. He wept because he knew that all the destruction and all the death and all the loss and all the devastation... It could have all been avoided had they just simply been willing to humble themselves and hear the Lord recognize that he was visiting them that day. But because they refused, their eyes were blinded and destruction was inevitable. Today, we begin the Holy Week. And next Sunday, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men and women will gather in houses of worship to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many are making their annual visit. Okay. Now, (laughs) I know there's no way of saying that without sounding like I'm trying to make fun of them. I'm not. And listen, I last few years, I have really tried to tone down that rhetoric. Listen, when you have, when you see people next week here that you haven't seen in a year, Don't bring that up to them. Just thank them for being here, okay? Like, don't don't point fingers at them. Don't judge them. We're just glad they're here, even if it is once a year. If they got to pick one Sunday to be here, let it be Resurrection Sunday. I mean, that's fantastic, okay? So don't put that on them. But I wonder how many of them will hear all the things that are necessary for peace, and they'll nod their head, and they'll walk out, And not know that God visited them that Sunday. And wanted to bring them the things of peace. But it's hidden from their eyes because they didn't recognize God was visiting them. And they'll continue on a path of destruction. Prayerfully, they'll turn to the Lord before it's too late. But you know what? The reality is, and and I know I'm, I'm preaching to you a little differently. But this has really been on my heart. And I know that a lot of you know I went away last week. There were a lot of things on my mind, but this message was really on my heart. I was overwhelmed with it this week. And in fact, at one point I came out of my office, I think it was on Thursday, and Kathy said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, but this message is just weighing heavy on me. Because I, I, I just really feel that it is a message that more than just our church needs to hear, but, but you're the congregation that has been entrusted to me, so it's first and foremost for us. And the reality is, beyond the ones that will gather here once a year, there's us who gather here every week. And every week, by the grace of God, I do my best to open up the Word 
and to rightly divide the word of truth and to present to you all that is necessary for peace. Peace in your mind, peace in your heart, peace in your relationships, peace with God, peace with your spouse, peace in your family. I do everything I can to bring from the word of God all the things that are necessary to bring you the peace that passes all understanding. But many of us will not humble ourselves to the word of the living God and we do not recognize that God is visiting us and we will continue on and in some cases to our own destruction. I just wonder how many have entered into painful and even devastating seasons in their life that could have been easily avoided had they simply been willing to humble themselves under the word of the living God and say, Lord, I don't always understand it. I don't always understand how it comes together, but I trust you. And I'm going to obey you and I'm going to follow you even when I don't sense it because I know that what you have put before me is a plan of peace. And if I walk in it, I know it will come to pass because you always deliver on your word in Jesus' mighty name. I've been here for 22 years, which just simply means that I've been here long enough to see men and women wreck their lives because they did not know the time of their visitation. And folks, if you just would allow me a few more moments, I just want to share with you just a few thoughts that I always have when I read this incredible story. First of all, I want you to consider that Jesus sympathizes. That Jesus sympathizes. Again, Luke says that as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Your Savior weeps. He sympathizes. He empathizes with us. And even though... Israel was getting what they had chosen. And I know that some of you would say, well, wait a minute, they didn't choose to be invaded by Rome. That's true. But they chose to reject Christ and his message of peace. And so in effect, they were choosing the consequences that they would inherit in the future. But even though this is what they had chosen, it in no way eased his pain. Jesus wept. Even though they were getting exactly what they deserved, he did not take pleasure in that. He wept over them. He wept. You know, there are some people that are very uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus weeping. Maybe not so much here, but there are branches of the Christian faith where they really struggle with the fact that Jesus would weep or that you can grieve the Holy Spirit or that God can be angered. And in fact, I was reading an article this past week that in some of the earlier copies of the Bible, some people would leave out any scripture that had God having an emotional reaction to man's decisions and choices because in their mind if God has an emotional reaction to our choices and our decisions then God is not sovereign that he is submissive to man that that his mood if you will is dependent upon man can I tell you that that is a gross misunderstanding God can have sorrow in his heart and yet remain sovereign because no one can emotionally manipulate almighty God he is the almighty God and his choices are not emotional They're intelligent, driven by love. 
And so God can be broken in his heart over what you and I do and yet remain sovereign at all times. But even when we are reaping the consequences of our choices, he has no delight in that. Don't ever think of God being up there and saying, well, they're getting exactly what they deserve. No. He grieves. Ezekiel 33, in verse 11, he says, Say to them, tell my people as I live. And how long has God been alive? That's not a trick question, folks. How long has he been alive? Forever. And he'll always be alive. As I live forever, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Some of us, when we hear of perverted men and women that have died, we're like, boy, they're getting what they deserve now. Jesus rebuked his disciples one day for saying something like that and said, you don't even know what spirit you're of. He has no delight in the death of the wicked because the death of the wicked means an eternal sentence to hell. He doesn't delight in that. He says, the only pleasure I have is when the wicked turn from their ways and live and pleads, turn, turn, and live. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, I love this verse. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Why did Jesus allow himself to be tempted at every point just like we are? For one reason, so that he could sympathize with us. So that he could empathize with our weaknesses. He did it without sinning. But he allowed himself to be tempted at every point because he wanted to know what it was like to be tempted in this flesh and blood body. He wanted to be able to intercede on our behalf and say, Father, I know, I've been there, I went through this. And he did that so that you and I would have confidence. The author would go on to say that we could come to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and grace to help in our time of need. I want you to know we serve a Savior of compassion, a Savior of mercy, a Savior who empathizes and and, and sympathizes with our weaknesses. And I don't care what you've done and I don't care where you've been and I don't care where you are today. Call out to God because He hears your cry Because he's a sympathetic and empathizing God in heaven. I also see that Jesus has come to offer peace. Jesus always come to offer peace. He says, if you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Literally, it's the things that are conditional for your peace, the conditions upon which peace is made. He's saying, I came to you with all that was necessary for peace. Jesus says, I'm coming as the sacrifice. I haven't made it yet, but I'm coming as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am coming to you with a message of repentance from turning from your sin to the living God. And I'm coming to you with a new covenant message that is not based upon obedience to the law, but faith in Jesus Christ and the law of love. He says, I'm coming to you with all that 
is necessary for peace. Just embrace it. And you need to know that even if it feels like what he is asking of you and requiring of you is restricting, it is always meant for your peace. Come on, can you say amen to that? Listen, first is peace with God. And Jesus has come with all that is necessary to have peace with God, sacrifice, repentance. He comes with the message of faith in his sacrifice. It is what makes peace with God. But even beyond that, as we said a few moments ago, we study the word of God. We communicate the word of God because we have come to believe that his way is the way of peace, of real peace, of everlasting peace, of the peace that you really look for. You know, in the one, on one hand, I, I, I feel for these young men and young women that gathered all over this country yesterday about gun violence. And I, I, I don't care what your politics are. You have to feel for these kids. They're the ones that are in the harm's way. So on the one hand, I get it. But I also want to say to them, kids, we can take guns out of their hands and we can take knives out of their hands and we can take cars and bombs out of their hand but you can't take violence out of the heart of man it's always going to be there and we need to recognize as a nation that there is only one way to experience peace and that is with God through his son Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior it's changing the heart of man he came and how many Sundays has he come said, this is the way of peace. But it's been hidden from our eyes because we would not recognize or humble ourselves before him. You know, I was thinking about it the other day. When, when Jesus rose from the dead and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred, Christianity took off in Jerusalem. I mean, it took off. But all of you know that through the years, it began to wane. In fact, it no longer was the center of Christianity. The center of Christianity became a city called Antioch that had a vision for taking it into the other lands. Jerusalem just kind of dried up. And I'm sure that 20 or 30 years after Jesus had risen from the dead, it it just was not something they talked about on the streets of Jerusalem anymore. And I'm sure that people would say, well, I guess Jesus was a false prophet because look what he said was going to happen and nothing like that is ever going to happen. It's never going to take place. No one's going to level us to the ground. And we're just going to keep on making the sacrifices as we've always made it and God is going to accept those sacrifices. But I'm going to tell you, folks, one day a rebellion broke out and before they knew it, 1.3 million Jews were strewn all over the streets in the desert. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Paul says, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked in this. The law of the harvest, whatever you sow, you will reap. Now the question is, where's the deception? The deception is in the delay. The deception is in the delay from planting to reaping. If you know anything about gardening or agriculture, you know that when you plant a seed, you don't get a harvest immediately there's a time delay 
It may take days. It may take weeks. It may take months. But there's always a delay. And it's in that delay that some people are deceived. They think, because I didn't get caught. Because my wife didn't find out. Because mom and dad didn't find out. Because I wasn't instantly judged. Because it wasn't unveiled. Because it wasn't revealed. I must be getting away from it. And Paul says, oh, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you're sowing, you're going to reap. And it may take 40 years. But it will come. Folks, hear me today. He always comes with peace. And you can ignore the peace like Jerusalem but you can't escape the consequences of your rejection. That leads us to two thoughts, and just bear with me. These are tough. Secondly, Jesus does not predestine personal disaster. Listen, God never planned for your disaster. I've heard Christians say, why did God allow this to happen to me? Why did God let this happen to me? God has never predestined your personal disaster. Jesus came to Jerusalem with a hope of peace. He came and brought the message and said, just follow me. You'll live. Just embrace me. You'll make it. You'll survive. Just embrace me. But they rejected him. And it was their rejection that brought disaster, not predestination. Proverbs 19 and verse 3 says, People ruin their lives by their own foolishness. And then are angry at the Lord. He says, you come back and you blame me, but I came and offered you peace. I came and I said, this is the way. If you'll just follow me. You, because of your own foolishness or your own rebellion... You have ruined your life. And you can blame me all you want to, but the reality is you made the choice to reject all that I gave for your peace. God does not predestine personal disaster, but he does allow personal decisions to be made. And that leads to the fourth thought that I had with you when we're done. Jesus will give us over to our decisions. Jesus will plead with us He'll give us time, but there is a moment where God says, now, I have to give you over to your decisions. I I will protect you as long as I can, but there comes a point where I will have to give you over to the consequences of your own choices and your own decisions. Listen, the Lord will never force himself on anyone. He did not force himself on Jerusalem that day. He will never force himself on any of you. He will never demand that you do it his way. He just comes before you and says, this is the way of life. And any other way will bring you death in the end. He won't force it on anyone. And you have the decision of whether you will follow him or you were going to go after your own path. And there will come a time in your decision-making where God says, I'm going to give you over to the consequences of them. I'm not pleading anymore. I'm just going to give it over. You say, well, when is that going to happen? That's the kicker. Nobody knows but God. You don't even know when that time will come. Only God has the ability to look at the heart and know 
the degree of its hardness. Only God knows when you've reached a place where he has to give you over to that. And, and, and that's what you have to realize because you think I got plenty of time. Honey, you may only have a day left. I don't know that. But you may deceive yourself in thinking you've got all the time in the world, but God, how many of you are thankful he's the God of the first chance, the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance? Oh, but you've heard me say, you've heard me say this a hundred times. He's also the God of the last chance. I don't know when that is, but there's a time. Proverbs 29 and verse 1 says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And to understand the suddenly there, the suddenly is in no way suggesting that it just came out of nowhere because the Bible said that they'd been on that path long enough for them to be often rebuked. They were often rebuked. They were often chastised. They knew this was coming, but they deceived themselves into thinking, it's not going to touch me. I'm not going to be a statistic. It's not going to happen to me. And then suddenly it strikes. And at this time, at this point, now there's no recovery. There's, there's no way that they can be remedied. It's the individual who lives in an old house and his pipes begin to start leaking. And he says, man, i got to replace these pipes because one day I'm going to walk into disaster. And he keeps plugging up the hole and plugging up the hole, month after month, plugging up the hole, week after week, plugging up the hole. And then one day he comes home and his basement is flooded. It happened suddenly and there was no remedy. But he'd had plenty of warning. And there's some of you here, I love you, but you've been warned that God has reached out to you with a plan of peace and of mercy, but you just keep plugging up the holes and plugging up your holes, but eventually disaster will strike and there'll be no remedy. Does that mean you can't be saved? I don't believe in this case it means you can't be saved. But why would you want to not only have to go through the painful process of salvation, but also the painful process of trying to re, redo your life after years of devastation. Like one more scripture and we'll be done. In fact, Will, why don't you just come? Paul put it this way in Romans 1 and verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Now, did you recognize the, pro- excuse me, the progression that's there? This is all in the context that men and women suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They, they keep holding down truth because they are determined to live their life the way they want to. And God says, I reached out to them, I pleaded with them, I revealed myself to them, they kept suppressing it, so finally I gave them up. Which, which just means that I gave them up to the consequences of their decisions because what I'm hoping through this is that in experiencing the consequences, they'll cry out to me. And so he keeps giving them up 
to the consequences and they harden their heart. So he gives them up a little bit more. Then he gives them up a little bit more. He makes their lives more miserable in the sense that they've rejected him and he's giving them over to the consequences of their rejection. Until finally God says, now I'm giving you over to a debased mind. And a debased mind means a mind that simply cannot be convicted. It's a mind that now is beyond salvation. People would say, Pastor Kurt, would God do that? Oh, absolutely. But understand that this happened over a long period of time. This wasn't God just looking down one day and saying, zap, you can't get saved. Zap, you can't. No. God reached out. He pleaded with them. He showed them all the things that were required for peace, but they kept rejecting They kept rejecting. Even in their consequences, they blamed God. Even in their consequences, they hardened their heart. And finally, God says, I now know that no matter what I do, they are not going to respond. And so I'm going to give them what they want in eternity without me. That is sadly what Palm Sunday is all about. Like I said, I grew up loving Palm Sunday. It's an exciting, fun time. But then you start studying and you realize that the same crowd that adored him on Sunday abandoned him on Monday. And Jesus wept because what should have been a day of peace actually became the final day of rejection that would ultimately set into motion a series of events that would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. Folks, I plead with you. Yesterday I received a call that a man who attended here at Bethel years ago was in a tough place then, but not anywhere near where he was today. But a young man just hardening his heart. People reached out to him pled with him. He came here for years with his family and heard the word of the Lord, but he kept rejecting, kept rejecting. He'd come back every once in a while when things got really tough and he'd cry out, but it was never long lasting. And I heard on Friday night he overdosed. As far as I know, he remains on a ventilator today. We should be praying, but the doctors do not expect him to make it lost I don't say these things to scare you I say these things because this is the reality don't run from God don't run from him because all he has ever done was brought peace embrace him in Jesus name hallelujah every bed bowed and every eye closed here you know question always is how do you end a service like this I could certainly make a call for salvation but the reality is there's probably many of us here who if we were honest we can all point to areas that we have run from the Lord rather than run to him where we have 
heard what he is saying, but we've run in the opposite direction because it wasn't convenient, because it wasn't helping us. And so in the spirit of that, I just, I would just love for for all of us that will today to just come to this altar and say, Lord, help our, our worship to be real. That we're not just worshiping you with our lips, but our hearts are far from you. We want to come and we want to surrender all to you. We, we're tired of, of not heeding the word of the Lord. We want to recommit our days to him. If you need salvation, you can come to this altar and cry out to God. If you need to come back to the Lord, you can come down here and cry out to the Lord. But I would love for all of us just on this Palm Sunday to say, Lord, we want to return to what this day should be. The recognition that you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's not just going to be words that we say. It's going to be how we live. If that's your heart today, I'd love for you just to come down with me. I'm, I'm here myself. But would you stand to your feet and as many of you can, just come and lift your hands up to the Lord and let's worship Him and surrender our days to the Lord here today. Let's make Palm Sunday what it really should be. It is the recognition He is the King. He is the Lord. Would you just come, press in as close as you can, make room for everyone that's coming. Can we just cry out to our God? Thank Him for grace and for mercy that He hasn't cut us off. Jesus. Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, my God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah.